Good day, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of The Effect Podcast. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And we've got, uh, as usual, a packed episode uh, today. There's, uh, We're going to have quite a short bit, I think, of World of Gaming. We've got a couple of bits of news we want to talk about. Something a bit nostalgic. Uh, obviously, we want to say thank you to our patrons and uh, uh, the new ones that weren't that that hadn't joined last time. Um, then I've got a, a bit of I've got a change to the published program, as they say on the BBC. Well, you published the, you, pu- you published the program after we finished the podcast. So how can it, how can it be yeah, a change there, to the there, published? There is that. Pod- yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. A change to what we promised. So at the end of the last episode, we promised that we'd do a Why Play Coriolis. And I really want to do that because all this talk about Alien and playing it uh, at UK Games Expo uh, a couple of weeks back, it's just made me really, really, really want to play Coriolis again. (laughs) Um, And I'm I'm uh, making things happen so that we might get some more Coriolis in shortly. But... um, but but I haven't actually written the article why play Coriolis, and the reason for that is you're a slacker. I've been well, <laughs> no no. I've been working on an article for a future episode about languages in Coriolis, and then that came up in Facebook on Facebook. Somebody was asking about languages, and I thought, oh, I've got some thoughts about that, and I quickly finished that article off and posted it on my blog and linked to it on Facebook, and. Well, if it's if it's out there on the blog, I thought we ought to record it for this episode. Yeah, it's so it's a good idea. Yeah. So languages is what we're going to talk about instead of Coriolis in general. Then, obviously, we've got a bit of a report, haven't we, mm-hmm. about our wonderful weekend away? <laughs> we do. It was a wonderful weekend away, um, but I, I guess you need to be slightly careful how you describe it in those terms, just in case your wife happens to listen. Who seems to yeah, think well, it was twin beds, mate? It was twin beds. Seems we to were think, sleeping seems, separately. Seems to think that we are having a bit of an illicit assignation because we seem to spend more time with each other than we do with our wives these days. But uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes, uh, it was a great. Yeah, so we, it was a really good. It, it was fabulous. It really was. So we've got a lot to talk about um, from UK Games Expo, except what else was going on at UK Games Expo. Because I don't know about you, Dave. But I didn't actually see much of the rest. We <laughs> no. spent so much time around the stall. One of the things I did get away for, though, is to do two or three interviews. So over the next few episodes, we've got a few players in the Hammam. And the first one that we're doing today is from Evan, who is a Maori player of Tales from the Loop. Mm. And then we're going to talk a bit about Alien, aren't we? Because that's what we were doing. That has kind of dominated our... Our horizons over the last few weeks. So, yeah. Um, um, every waking moment, in fact. <laughs> it seems like it sometimes. Uh, yeah, so we've got quite a lot to talk about there, I think. And not only our, our reflections on how it went at uh, the UK Games Expo and what we actually ran there and where what's that spun off into, where what else is happening on the back of that. But also, you know, let's talk a little bit about um, the game itself and our impressions of uh, of the mechanics, the way they work. And I also um, uh, I also know that some people have been posting on the yeah, so free league forums, and I think there's some comments. We can have a conversation about some of the comments that have come up there. 
Yeah, cool. And you can you can answer them live. Um, I'll I'll call them up on the interwebs. <sighs> but first of all, let's crack on with World of Gaming. Yes. So. And I've got two bits of news. First of all, for all fans of Free Again who want to persuade other people to get into some of the games they publish, uh, they Free Again snuck out a quick starter for Simbaroom on Drive Through RPG. Indeed. It's free. It's what is it? 117 pages. It is 117 pages, which gives you, uh, you know, a, a, a good selection of chapters and paragraphs from the core rule book. Um, it'll make it possible for you to to run the game, obviously, learn the basics of the mechanics and give it a go. And uh, it'll also give you um, a bit of background around the, uh, you know, the epic six-part chronicle, uh, the Thorn of Thrones, which is kind of the the mainstay, the background or the backbone of the the Simbaroom story that they're telling at the moment. Um, and that gives you an introduction into that as well. So. It looks to and me that's brilliant, and that comes at the extremely valuable, uh, or value, I should say, value for <sighs> money price of, of nothing at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, we get some glorious Martin Grip artwork there, which I always think looks better on your iPad than it does on the printed page. Well, no, it looks no, great on I'd, printed pages. No, well. yeah, I kind of disagree. Uh, I think it looks great <laughs> on both, actually. Um, I I just love the light coming through it from the iPad because you know uh, uh, the world of Simba Room is pretty grim dark and I like a little bit of the sunshine in there as well. Uh, true, I do. I do remember when we when we spoke to Martin the first time we met him a couple of years ago. I was commenting on how much I liked the artwork and the uh, the kind of textures and the um, the look and feel of a very sort of dark and gloomy background. And uh, he very op- open and honestly said. Yeah, well, I do that just because it's a lot easier than doing all the background detail. <laughs> just like, okay, <laughs> well, it works. So, uh, you know, who, who, it looks beautiful. It does look fabulous. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's um, up yeah. on that's up on RPG dot uh, RPG dot com. Drive through RPG. Drive through RPG right now. Um, get in there. It's free. and we'll put a link in our show notes, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and it's free. So what's what's not to like? Get in there yeah, and share it, it with your friends. I imagine most of our listeners have, you know, uh, well, I guess, uh, you know, a good chunk of our listeners might only have gone with the Year Zero Engine games and not wanted to give um, Simbaroom a try. Different system, after all. So if you're one of those people, then, you know, just download this and give it a go because it's really atmospheric whether or not you love the system. Well, actually, as, as a GM, I mean, we've talked about the dice mechanics before, but... I, I mm. love the system in, in that you base all your skill checks on your, your main attributes. And so it's so flexible and so easy to run um, for the GM. It makes the game really fast-paced. So whether or not you yeah. like the dice mechanic, the actual the way the game is designed um, and the way the stats work, it, it does make for a really fast-paced, easy-to-run game for a GM. So I'd recommend people give so it a go. Give it a go. Give it a go, and if you're already a Simbaroom convert, share the link with your friends as well to get more people excited. Yeah, right? absolutely. Let's build this free league community. Yeah. Join to the competition. You know, we we, we, we don't just talk about free league products. Uh, there's some interesting news that's come off the back of, uh, well, I, I guess actually off the back of E3, the great big computer gaming um, event that happens in America at this time of year, uh, and there they launched. Cyberpunk 2077, which is based on the old Cyberpunk role-playing game. Yeah. 
And on the back of that, Artalsorian Games, the uh, the publishers, have uh, said that they are going to be releasing a quick start for their new version of Cyberpunk called Cyberpunk Red at the beginning of next month, 1st of August. Hmm. Interesting. Because I... Uh... I'm a big fan of the old cyberpunk games. Uh, I loved those back in the day. Um, in in advance of this conversation, I went st- straight to the place uh, on the shelf in my back room where I knew exactly where my old copies of cyberpunk were and pulled it off the pulled it off the shelf to have a look at it again. And it's such a good game. I mean, it was it was it was kind of out at the time that Shadowrun was. It was for me anyway, almost a kind of direct competitor in that kind of dark. Uh, corporate world thing, and I never really got on with the fantasy elements of Shadowrun. I never really liked. I've got to say, I never liked the elves and dwarves. No, and um, like in Shadowrun, I, I didn't like that. Whereas Cyberpunk twenty twenty and Cyberpunk before it were just the perfect game for for me. I guess I probably got into those games when I was about eighteen or twenty, and I just you know read a load of uh, William Gibson and uh, some of the the less less special but still quite good read spin-offs uh, authors like Jack Womack um, and others who did similar sorts of work but wasn't quite as good as William Gibson um but I just loved it no. I just I just loved it um looking through it again, I didn't play much of Cyberpunk I'm not <clears> even sure whether I played any I did buy one of the supplements which was near space yeah which is quite interesting orbital adventures um but uh, and I liked that. I liked all the content of that. I liked the ideas, but I can't remember playing it at all. I think you did play a little bit towards the end of one of the campaigns I ran because I ran a campaign in orbit. Um, mm, that was, might be why I got that. Book yeah, or? it was quite short-lived that campaign, and that was the last campaign I ran of of Cyberpunk because I think by then I'd run it a fair amount, and some players were getting a bit tired of it had, had had enough of it so yeah. we moved on to other stuff um but yeah i'm really excited actually um i'm gonna get that quick starter and have a look at it and see see how they move it on um one of the things that i i like very much about the the character generation in in cyberpunk 2020 is it's very similar in many senses uh certainly in sort of narrative sense to some of the stuff that free league has done around building a much more interesting story around your character as you create them, mm. which I which I really like. I think that's really good. And then obviously having money to choose a selection of cybernetics that you want is just great fun. So I really <laughs> really look forward to seeing what Cyberpunk Red is going to be going to be like. Um, Artel Sorian doing it is good. They've got a good track record of the certainly the cyberpunk genre for me. So yeah, excellent. Um, and I, I yeah, and they're having a bit of a revival because last year they brought out the the Witcher tabletop mm. role-playing game. Again, uh, this time, going back the other way, uh, a computer game getting converted to tabletop. And that's been reasonably well-received. Yeah, I haven't played that, so I, I don't know much about it. But um, mm. usually I'm very sceptical of... We've had this conversation before, of um, you know big popular IPs from either film, TV or computer games being converted into a role-playing game. Because there certainly are yeah, some. Can't possibly work. There are well, it can work, but there are a lot, <laughs> a lot of examples where it really doesn't work. So I always have a yeah. little shudder of fear about. Oh God, this is going to be a disaster. Um, but you know, this is this is 
falling back on a on a very good pedigree that Artar Sorian have already got with this genre. So fingers crossed. And fingers crossed. Well, in um, in the world of gaming, in six weeks' time, we'll talk about it. See what we think. Yeah, I guess so. If we've got it out in uh, in a couple of episodes' time, I imagine that'll be. Yeah, so if it's um, if it's first of August, then uh, that should be should be two episodes time with a bit of luck, maybe three, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Well, it depends how much time we've got to read it because we are busy bunnies, we are. aren't we? Yes. Um, and being busy bunnies, we should crack on. Um, it's time to say thank you to our patrons. Indeed. So uh, I've got five new patrons to say thank you to. For a start, we've got Paul Watson who came to. UK Games Expo and said hello to us there. Hey Paul, thank you. We got Dan Williamson who runs the RPG Logic podcast. Cheers, Dan, thank you. And we've got your mate Doug from Victory hey. Condition Gaming. Good old Doug. <laughs> uh, we've also got uh, Thomas Powell. Thomas, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And Wes Baker. Thank you, Wes. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you to all our patrons. And uh, guys, if you if you want to get a thank you and a shout out from us and also <laughs> want to support us putting the, the whole program together, then do uh, go to our uh, Patreon, which I will put a link to in the show notes. Right then. Now, the, Lang- the next item we have. Languages. Zeni is uncommon on Sadal. The language is growing slowly on Bahram but the indigenous tongues still dominate in Alberg. Priests and diplomats claim not to understand a word of Zeni and use translators in all meetings with foreigners. The Atlas Compendium, page 17. I am not generally a fan of language skills, or lack of them, getting in the way of fun role-playing but I appreciate the point of view of players who might be inspired by the cultural history of the Third Horizon to play with language difficulties. The core rulebook makes a number of references to the diverse languages of the Third Horizon, but apart from providing a couple of technological workarounds, such as the language unit on page 109 and the cybernetic language modulator on page 75, it doesn't offer much mechanically to emulate the complexity of communication. If I had a group of players eager to be explorers, traders in exotic goods or missionaries, and turned on by the difficulties of communicating in the Third Horizon, I'd house rule it like this. Zeni is the common tongue. The language of the Zenithians, Zeni, has grown into the lingua franca of the horizon today, as trade and commerce are dominated by the Zenithians. Most travellers and PCs speak Zeni in addition to their native tongues. Core Rulebook, page 223. A closed community travelling for generations to the horizon would have a strong shared language. The work the Zenithians did in opening up the portals and bringing together first-come communities who had cut themselves off from one another puts them in the place of colonial Britain, spreading English around the world and replacing French as the lingua franca. Even if what results in some places is a patois like Singlish in Singapore, there will be enough Zenithian words in the dialect that even the least educated plebeian can make themselves understood. 
I'm not ruling out the idea that different Zenithian families might have preserved their own language, or that the sleepers on the Zenith might have struggled to learn the Zenithian that evolved during the centuries of the voyage, but those are complexities that I'm not going to get into here. Maybe in the future sometime, if I have a campaign based around the politics within the Zenithian hegemony, there will be an opportunity to get into the nitty-gritty. Speaking of the hegemony, you just know they have a language institute defining Zeni grammar and vocabulary and ineffectively banning words borrowed from first-come languages. How many languages are there? All Zenithians speak Zeni, and all first-come speak their native language in Zenithian. These are the base languages for every PC. Yes, this puts first-come characters at a slight advantage, but I don't care. If you really do care, how about this? Only privileged first-comes speak Zeni like a Zenithian. Stationaries take a minus one modifier when rolling to, for example, manipulate a Zenithian of equal reputation, and plebeians a minus two. What is their native language? Whatever the player thinks fits their character. A number are mentioned in the book, including Dabari, Miri, Kuan, Algolan, and Zelosi. And we know that the nomad tribes have enough different languages to make presenting themselves as a single faction to the political structures of the Third Horizon very confusing. One imagines that the Order of the Prior have ensured there is only one Zelosi language, and everything else spoken in that system is heresy. But you can also imagine that the heretics of Zalos B have also stamped out every language other than their true Zelosi. I like to think that the planets of the Third Horizon are not monocultures, and that each has developed a variety of linguistic communities. But just how detailed your players want to go is up to each table to decide. If your native community is a particular forest of Labuan, you could say that the tribe's dialect is your native language, but you might prefer to say that you speak Labuanese. And let us not forget the languages of the semi-intelligent, the Echilibri and the Nectara on Kua, and the Scavara on Amido. Cultured Linguists Amida from Amido is perhaps the most popular artist in Tatu Alley. She is well-travelled and speaks several languages. Corbuck, page 256. In a multilingual horizon, your PCs will have the opportunity to speak more than one language. But how many? A simple house rule I'd use to manage this would be that you can speak as many exotic languages fluently as you have points in culture. Thus, a Zenithian, with three points in culture, can speak a total of four languages, Zeni and three others. A first-come with three points in culture can speak five, their native language, Zeni, and three others. I would recommend that players don't pick which languages they speak at character creation, though a Zenithian player character choosing to speak Chuzelosi at creation is that player lobbying the GM for an adventure set on Zalos B, surely. Rather, when the party encounter an exotic language, any player with an unassigned culture point and a decent reason why they might speak it should claim the right to be the translator for the party. 
If none of the party have unassigned languages or a technological solution, then it's up to those with culture to make a role with any modification the GM chooses every time they need to make themselves understood. Thanks for that, Matt. Really interesting. I I find it... I'm a bit conflicted um, because I've found in my role gaming experience that frequently having a lot of variety of language um, either gets in the way or Mm. is just hand-waved. And actually where, um, where you should have it get in the way it's just, just a bit inconvenient in the plot at that point. So it's, it is easier, uh, possibly lazier, to have uh, you know, not too much worry about you know, the language um, that the characters are using. That said, I think then maybe there is occasionally space for a scenario or a campaign where language is, a re- is right in the forefront and where language is a key element and you know the communication is much more important than other elements of the game in which case you could make a really interesting and uh, i think quite uh, quite entertaining um uh, sort of uh, melange of languages that the characters have got to sort of negotiate their way through and as you were talking about having a having one of the party who who might be you know for want of a better word an interpreter but perhaps not a very good one um, mm-hmm. I think that's a really nice idea. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I think generally languages can become a barrier to fun. Yeah. Um, uh, for example, I'm I'm playing a campaign at the moment of RuneQuest, and that's you know quite an old school rule system. So I've got a tiny percentages in languages, and just about the only one I share with my fellow players is trade talk. Um, it would really piss me off if every time I said something, um, my GM said, right, roll, roll and see if you get under 15% on your trade talk <laughs> yeah, exactly. or whatever. I, it, it's a yeah. relatively low number. It might not, it might be 30 even. But, but you still, know, yeah. The, but, so, you know, what I do there is I try in my conversation when I remember to kind of, well, I, I, I said recently, I worry I'm, I'm sound like Donald Trump because I try and speak in in terms of trade and deals and stuff like that, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying, what's the deal? What's in it for us and stuff like that. Um, and as a little nod to the fact that trade talk is the only thing I can speak. But um, but yeah, generally, of course, language is an abstraction. But there are well, if you think things like two two really disparate examples. If you think of the fact that on Star Wars, uh, only Han Solo can understand what Chewbacca says mm. um, is is kind of great. You know, that, that's a lovely thing to have. Uh, and a Chewbacca, luckily, can can understand what everybody else says, amazingly. Um, yeah, it would be... just can't be bothered to speak their language. It would be, it would be funnier <laughs> if Han had to speak Chewie or Wookiee to Chewie. You know, yes. Rather than, you know, Chewie... It's a bit like, uh, you know, English English people abroad, isn't it? That they... They don't bother learning yeah. the foreign language, and they expect everyone to speak their own language. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit humanist in that sense. Yes, um, <laughs> exactly. Um, but also, the other example, of course, is Star Trek, where for for reasons of convenience, they invented the yeah. universal translator. Uh, but then there's great episodes like that one with uh, I think it was called Darmok, where Darmok Captain and Picard, J- Janash, is, or whatever it is. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, uh, and he lands on a planet with an alien who, of course, they can understand because they've got the universal translator. So he can understand the words, but it doesn't actually make sense of the language. And so that, that, that you know, actually having fun with communication difficulties can make for a really good, probably one off episode in your campaign, I think. Yeah. I think also um, playing with the ideas of language, uh, you know, is can be a lot of fun so you know we talked about Simbaroom a minute ago um the Simbaroom mm-hmm. campaign that i was running when you were playing um the lonesome ogre pot boy <laughs> uh you just chose not you, you know you were a bit like chewbacca i guess in that sense you chose not to speak uh, so people didn't actually understand what you wanted most of the time because you just didn't <laughs> say anything you just did it with a a raised eyebrow with a look. or something um, <laughs> but actually you could understand everything that they were saying so I think in a game where where you've got... So taking the Star Wars example, if you were going to really play that through, then all the other nobody else should understand what the person playing Chewbacca is saying. And then mm. the person playing Han Solo has to translate that, and then you run the risk of you know Chinese whispers and all the rest of it. That, that in itself might be quite fun, but how you make it play in a really slick way around the table, I don't quite know. Because that would be quite diff- yeah. that would be quite difficult, I think. Yeah, you'd ha- you'd have to have the player being Chewbacca going Wah! and writing quick note and passing it to Han Solo, wouldn't you? Yeah, or whispering um, or texting it or something, which will get a bit yeah. painful after a while, I think. Uh, and, and of course, actually, you could do that in Coriolis because there are, as I said, three you know semi-intelligent races who have a language of their own. And can be taught at least to understand and potentially speak some words of Zeni, but uh, but you could run somebody who doesn't actually speak Zeni and only communicates in their own language. Yeah, I quite um, I quite like some of the basic sort of uh, mechanical ideas of being able to learn as many languages as you have points in culture, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess the question is. Yeah, you're right. I think in saying that having having this as perhaps the focal point of a of a one-off or one scenario in a campaign is fine. Having to stumble over language in every scenario of the campaign might get boring after a while. Might get boring. Yeah. I mean, you know, and if you but if your players love it and they love yeah, all that sort yeah, of stuff, absolutely. then encourage them to be explorers. Send them off to some far horizon where you know there's a language that hardly speaks any and then um, go with it or um you know at the top of that article i actually gave an example from the core book of some guys who basically they're like the french they can speak zeni probably but they insist on not speaking it and using <laughs> translators uh so uh uh i'm sorry to any of our french listeners but <laughs> Well, of course I did, but we are the French are the natural enemies of the English, so we'll just leave it at that, shall we? Um, just okay. Of course, um, we were talking a bit before we start an international incident. Uh, I would like to say <laughs> that the views put forward by one of the co-hosts are not the official views of Effect Podcast or any <laughs> Effect brand, uh, and we might edit that out, Matt. You, you... Anyway. Moving swiftly on, um, and, I, did uh, have, I did have another point that I was going to make, which okay. your little abusive tirade at the French has thrown me somewhat. Um, well, I, I was going to mention that uh, we had a little bit of a chat about this on the Discord as we were planning the program. If you want to join us as we plan programs, 
then then become a Patreon and you can join our Discord as well. Mm-hmm. And Andy uh, uh, joined in on this one and was talking about, of course, uh, jargon, which I always think in the real world, jargon is specifically designed to separate one group of people from the hoi polloi. You know, they, they use jargon as a kind of code to prove themselves to be superior to everybody else, to shut out people. And so, of course, you could, you know, have a, an adventure like that in the game as well. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, the, the, the thing I was grappling to, to remember was um, your talk about the, the zenith and the idea that actually um, some of those who'd been asleep, or, or Andy might have mentioned this, um, so those who'd been asleep for the journey, uh, you know, for thousands of years, they, they would still, they would wake up with the old original traditional language that they left mm-hmm. with. Those who'd been alive and awake on board the ship, the generations, um, would have developed a different language. But actually, the majority would have been the traditionalists because the majority will be asleep. Yeah. So actually, when you come out, suddenly the, you know, the command crew are talking a, a patois that is, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? And everybody else is talking the original traditional language. So, um, yeah, that's a good point. That that's might, a good point. that might, so that could interestingly be a, uh, you know, a internal Zenithian schism, maybe, where uh, actually there are two parts of it, or there's a small part of it, um, of uh, the Zenithians who actually can't understand the others. And maybe there's yeah. a small breakaway group of that command group decided sod the rest of you, you, you know, you're stuck up, you know, traditionalists. We've got this language and we're sticking with it. Um, so that might give a yeah. Story well, of course, that- actually, you know that that is a very good point because there is a small breakaway group of Zenithians who said, "Sod mm. you, we're leaving." Yeah, and yeah, the, um, yeah I'm the thinking how this fits. Yeah, yeah. the Draconites. Yeah, so they were the ones with the modern, uh, you know, developed language. And actually, you could imagine the Zenithian hegemony and their language institute have been trying desperately to stop the language developing among the the living crew. Yeah, <laughs> for so many years, and then when you know when when everybody else comes out and they're all speaking old Zenithian, they're going, "Yay! Great, ah. you know, the, here are all our allies. We can now really enforce our rules." So yeah, I think that works. Yeah, cool, nice, good work, Matt. Well done. So, what were you doing at the weekend? couple of weeks ago <laughs> uh oh, um well i'm assuming we're talking about the games expo one because i could talk about the weekend before but that might not be quite so interesting to everybody else no no um, I, I don't care what you were actually doing <laughs> Dave. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah uk games expo my actually my first ever time at the games expo it's always been one of those places i've wanted Mine to too. go but it's been a bit of a distance and a bit of a noise to get there so I, I never quite made the effort to go. Um, and yeah, we, we got up there early on the Friday morning um, before it opened up, mm-hmm. joined up with our Free League colleagues, uh, got our brand new Free League T-shirts because we're obviously part of the team. Yeah. And um, I have to say, uh, there's a special thing about that, getting early there in the morning and joining our Free League colleagues, and that's getting your exhibitor's pass. <laughs> yes. Well, which yeah. just makes you feel a bit superior. And then getting <laughs> to walk into the hall... Down the bit that says exhibitors only this way, exhibitors only this way. And to all oh, the hoi polloi around <laughs> waiting. The hoi polloi. You mean all those lovely other members of the gaming community 
who uh, yes yeah that, that's who, exactly who I mean who we, yes, who yes, we want yes, to sorry. listen who we want to listen to our podcast and think we're nice and all people. our listeners as well yeah so 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 far today you've insulted the French which is about what 120 million people you've insulted the entire uh, non-exhibitor gaming community in this country which yeah. I don't know going by the numbers who turned up at UK Games Expo you're talking at least quite a lot of people 30 or 40,000 um, good start that's 120 million, yeah, 40,000 well. people I'm you've insulted. Well. Not including me, of course, which you, you insult every day. So. Well, I, I insult you every day. <laughs> yes, but it was it was quite nice walking down that um, exhibitor aisle and having the, the very big, fearsome, intimidating man at the end look at you with a very grumpy frown and then smile and nod you through. It's like... Uh, yeah, that was good as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So we got in. We helped them set up their stall, didn't we? We did. At the, the Free League stall. Um, and what else did we do? It sounds like you're talking to a five-year-old. <laughs> like, so what else Dave? did we do, little Davey? Well, we we then set up the, the table for the demo that we were running, and, and it all got really exciting. <laughs> so, yes, we, yeah, we, I mean, we set I, up... I've got to say, we... Go on, sorry, go on. Go. No, no, you go. Well, I was going to say, we, we spent so much time around that store that we didn't actually really get to see much of UK Expo at no. all, did we? I had two, over the whole weekend, I had about two half an hour periods where I either wasn't going, I wasn't either working on a demo, working on the stall, going to the toilet or getting a cup of coffee. Um, and, mm. and those two half an hour sessions, I I kind of just blindly walked around the uh, the two giant halls that they had there with, I mean, so much gaming goodness so all over the place stuff. um you know i could have i could have happily been there for three days <laughs> you know as a visitor rather we than, were there for three days <laughs> oh yeah yeah well if i finish my sentence as a visitor rather than as a as an exhibitor yeah. although the other thing um you know this isn't kind of the first time we've been to a a convention with a purpose no, we have so been we, to conventions so before. so we've done I, I mean with a purpose so we've done dragon meat twice now as part of the podcast zone um, the last time we went, we were you know much more involved in in running the the grindbone challenge. Um, so we were oh, yeah. we were obviously kind of participants, if not exhibitors. But the thing that struck me this time was kind of how much more fun it is to be an exhibitor than just a visitor. Um, <laughs> going, going... Now who's insulting all the visitors and the general community? No, no, I'm not insulting them in the slightest. Um, I'm recommending to them that they get more involved and uh, you know become exhibitors and make games and stuff. More volunteers and because, and, and, and running I, games. Because yeah. I think the thing that really uh, I loved the most. I mean, obviously, I run. I love me you know, joining up with the free league guys again. Brilliant to see them all. Uh, I love running the games. Great fun on the stall. But just talking to people I'd never met mm. before about games that I and they love and um, yeah. just doing that for three days solid. I mean, what more kind of would a gamer want to do really? I mean, it was absolutely, it was really special and um, everybody you met, as you would expect in that kind of environment was really good. Um, you know, there's, there's always the occasional bad apple and some people would have heard the, the news that came out about it. We're not going to, going to ponder, not gonna dwell ponder on, that. on that at all. But you get the odd bad apple. Well, except to say that um, the people, the players involved in that experience had joined us for our very first game yeah. of Alien yeah. and uh, had a whale of a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we saw them, uh, obviously, then uh, they enjoyed the show then. I think one of them were the people that told 
Uh, Doug, what a great GM you were, <sighs> despite the fact that I was running the game. <laughs> I still don't know how that yeah, happened. Well, Phil, uh, I, think, I think that was Phil. And hi, Phil. That was um, Phil, yeah. Uh, that was Phil, and Phil obviously could just see a great GM from a mile off, even without having had him run roll a dice. You were for him. emanating great GMs. <laughs> I was, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we did have uh, you know another another person very very kindly um, say how great I was, and then go and tell. Oh God, that was go and tell sickening. everyone. She was she was wonderful. But not only did I say she how was... great you were, she said you were the best GM she had ever had in her entire life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, How much did you pay her? <laughs> well, amazingly, I didn't pay her anything. You know, it's just, uh, you know, I would have paid her yeah. a lot to say that, frankly. But um, um, yeah. Um, so, so for me, it was just meeting all these lovely people. Um, you know, lots of people you've never met before. Lots of people I sincerely hope I will meet again. Um, you know, if not uh, in another way, but at a new, um, you know, the next convention we were all at because uh, it was great. I mean, there, there was one crowd. Um, who I, I ran on one of the demos that was basically a parallel universe version of us. Um, <laughs> and they were, tell me about and this. They were tell me more. They were brilliant. And they um, uh, well, they were just great. It was a really good group of four. There'd been some kind of snafu because um, one of the guys who'd turned up for the game, who, who was on the list, um, was a, just... Well, it wasn't late because I started that one early because I thought I had my four players, but I hadn't checked. So there was some kind of cock-up. So we ended up with five on that one. And they were just right. great, great role players, great fun. Um, people just like us who've been role playing for forty odd years know each other inside and out, and and were great, and just had a really good fun, fun game. But every group that I well, ran with was that the was party great. that had um, Gaz off the Smart Party. That's right, involved. absolutely. Yeah, he was. He yeah. unfortunately was the one who um, was possibly going to be bumped off, but clearly it was my mistake. So uh, we we managed to squeeze up another chair for that for that game and bring him on. And he was great. He played. Yeah, that's a very good idea. He, Not insulting Gaz off the spot. <laughs> they've got a big audience, and we have as well. We've got to a link to them, maybe uh, yeah, as well. Absolutely. Uh, but he was great because he uh, he played the android, and he played it really well. And the other the other players could tell he was doing stuff that was odd, um, but he did it anyway. And then in the end, they had a big mm-hmm. fight with him. They they killed him by dropping a um, a filing cabinet on him in the end. And, <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was a great game. But we're going to talk more about Alien later on. But as I said, for me, yes. the, the greatest thing about going to this kind of place is just meeting such a lot of fabulous, lovely people, having a great time with them and talking about, um, you know, what is my passion um, and theirs. And and actually, that's, uh, that's something that we did manage to do. Uh, so one of the people that came to the stall, and again, this is, as you say, this is one of the things about going as an exhibitor is people come to you. I mean, yeah. sure, you know, if you're wandering around, you get into conversations with other people, you join games and stuff like that. That's great. But what was fabulous for us this time is people kept coming to us, talking about the games we love. Mm. I mean, you know, that's special. And so uh, Evan was one of those guys who came to the stall and was really desperate to talk about <laughs> his game um, to the creators of Tales from the Loop. And so, obviously, I let him have a chat with... Um, with Niels and Martin you, well, and you, the people who were there. You let him. That was very, but that also, was very big of you. <laughs> but I also uh, uh, took him off uh, to have a cup of coffee in the cafe, which I've got to say is not the best recording environment, yeah. um, and talked to him a little bit uh, uh, specifically for a Players in the Hammam slot, which we've got coming up. 
So um, I'm here with Evan, and uh, Hi. we're at, I should say we're at Games Expo, actually, UK Games Expo, but you're not from the UK, Evan. I'm not, although I've lived here for a while, I'm from New Zealand originally. All right, yeah. okay, and you are being, you've been playing, you came to the Free League stall, I did, yeah. you were raving about Tales from the Loop. Uh, well, yeah, because I was very excited, because um, last year I bought Tales from the Loop, and managed to get a, uh, a gang of kids together, not literally kids, they're on but obviously if you know the game, they play as kids, yeah. um, and just got the Kickstarter of Things from the Flood as well, so we're continuing our adventures um, on from Tales from the Loop into Things from the Flood. Cool, and you were showing me earlier on that your loop isn't actually it's not in, the in Sweden or, or America, Boulder Colorado, City, no, or no, Norfolk like the one, where is it? Um, well, I grew up in a little little island um, just off Auckland City uh, called Waiheke Island. Okay. So um, back then the population was about 3,000, mm-hmm. which being an island near the city would treble its summer. So I decided to put the loop on Waiheke Island. Um, brilliant. You showed me a gorgeous map. Yeah, so um, I made the map and I took some of the, um, the key and stuff from um, the art that's in the book and, and just edited that. But yeah, so it's got a, it's got the reactor. We call it the Spencer reactor mm-hmm. because back then, back in the day, um, there was a, a very rich farmer that owned half of Waikiki Island called called Spencer. Right. So he's obviously sold off a bit of his land to. Uh, it's not. Um, I've changed the company name as well. It's not. Um, it's not Mike's Energy. Mike's <laughs> Energy. No, it's the uh, uh, New Zealand uh, Energy Research yeah. Company, which was. A, which was a, an ex- existing company back in the day. So, um, I think it's in their English loop. It's um, the Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, exactly. It's great to have these organisations. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It adds a bit more realism as well to the game. So, um, all my NPCs uh, in in my loop um, are old people from the community that I remember way back. This was in the eighties. So yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm pretty convinced that actually those guys on the Malawan Islands are. Did yeah. the same, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And your community, uh, forgive me, uh, I can see your Maori tattoos, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, so you're Maori, yeah, I'm Maori, yeah, definitely. Cool. Yeah. Um, and have you brought any of that sort of Maori culture into the into the game? Yeah, um, we did on the on um, so we did two mysteries with the kids in Tales uh, from the Loop, and now they've had um, there's been a, a three year hiatus. Um, some stuff's gone down, so there was an explosion, um, and now the teens and things from the flood. Right. So my introduction to the mystery and things from the flood was um, there was like a, a ritual, uh, well, it was sort of like a, uh, one of the uh, Maori elders from the Marae invited one of the teens over uh, to experience some culture where they do a, they do a sending off um, to some of the um, spirits that have passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all kind of went a bit pear-shaped because they were using some candles, uh, which Hi. had been made by I won't go to the, well, made by a nefarious scientist. Right. Yeah. Okay. And she's been distributing like these kind of candles and other bits and pieces into the community because it has mind-altering effects. Um, so this sending off um, turned into a completely hallucinogenic experience um, where. Um, Maori spirits came out, came from, came through like outside, came into the house um, in full tribal gear. Uh, the, the 
woman who was who was um, doing the actual um, uh, kind of like the prayers and stuff. She saw her dead son, uh, who like tried to take her away somewhere into the water, and so all the everyone was tripping out. They had to make um, rolls, um, body, body rolls, to try and fight the effects. Right. Some of them completely did not. Some of them woke up. Um, a couple didn't, and basically thought they were going to be killed by Maori warriors, like coming into the into the house to you know with adzes and stuff. So yeah, so to bring a little bit of Lovely. it into it, yeah, but. Lovely. They've worked it out. They got they got woken up. They work out there's something wrong with the candles, uh, and so the, they've been introduced into the mystery now. So cool. Yeah, I love it. It sounds like um, you know we used to get uh, as kids and teens. We used to get quite a lot of Australian and New Zealand kids dramas sort of shown on BBC Children's Television. Oh right, like I get that. you. <laughs> and you're describing that, I'm sort of seeing it already. I can imagine it. Yeah. yeah, with a bunch of young Kiwi actors actually playing the roles. As yeah, well, yeah. So. Well, um, because uh, we don't play. We play on um, Roll Twenty. So uh, all my players uh, from all over the place. I've got um, uh, Leonor and Katarina. They're in Portugal. Um, Russia's in South Africa. Uh, Natalie, I think, is in Canada. I think. Um, and Sai and Joff. Um, Sai's in Florida, and Joff's in Seattle. Wow. Yeah. So, so okay, I'm, I'm a, uh, you're blowing my mind here. Not so much that we've got a great international community of gamers because we know that, yeah. uh, but but time zones for all those different. Yeah, games. yeah, time zones is tricky. Scheduling is uh, the, the big evil guy. Cool. Always, yeah. So um, we don't get to play so often because of schedules, but um, maybe like once a month. So no, that's still pretty yeah, it's good, not too actually. bad. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe a every, every once a month. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. <laughs> So yeah, we, we do manage to sort of like sort it out, and it just builds up the hype in between sessions because it, it takes so long to get a game organised yeah. that everyone's completely excited for for, for when it when it arrives. Oh, that's brilliant. As players, what do they think of the game? They love it. I mean, um, we're all sort of like D and D backgrounds, um, and specifically Five E. So we love the story. We're, and Tales from the Loop is story driven. It's a collaborative story. Um, which is ideal because everyone gets to chip in about what their um, their background, who they interacted, their anchors, um, and what they're doing in the story. So everyone can explain the environment a little bit. It's not all just down on me to explain what's going on. Everyone helps out and it, everyone gets more invested in the story. So cool. they're all big role players. Yeah, they're not like heavy um, sort of like rules people. They they are story over mechanics most of the time. You know, so. Okay, I've got to ask this question there because. As you say, kind of story orientated, but D and D guys sometimes come out with your linear probability path of your D twenty. Right. They yeah. Look at this pool of D sixes, and they can't make a head or tail. Yeah, um, none of us are like that at all. No. Yeah, so we, we always just go with the flow. Make sure that the story moves forward cool. um, rather than gets bogged down in rules. So yeah. excellent. Yeah. So that's great fun. Is there anything else while you're on the podcast you'd like to tell the world about? Yeah, so I've been um, doing some work with bookbinding. So specifically um, your existing books. So I'm a big D&D nerd. So I have been stripping the cover off my D&D books and rebinding them in leather and laser etching the covers, adding bookmarks and headbanding and guilting the edges as well. So, so yeah, so you've got a really luxury item so of your beautiful books. Cool. Um, and I want to sort of do that as a service for people so if you've got old books old books that you own already and yeah yeah, you can send them to me and as a service 
I'll rebind it for you in any material like. So it doesn't have to be leather. It could be faux leather. It could be cloth. Custom bound. Custom bound books. And if you've got a design in mind, I could laser etch that design. And I've also um, been doing some research into hot, hot foil pressing. So you know that really nice gold, With the gold, gold foil. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And debossing, whereas it's just the design pressed into the, pressed into the yeah, leather. yeah. So it's quite subtle, but really nice. So yeah, that's the service I want to launch soon. So, cool. Yeah. And we'll keep an eye on your Twitter. Yep. We'll see when that gets launched. That's at Monkey Boy. M O N K I B zero Y. Okay. Yeah, check it out. Terrific. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks very much. Nice one. Well, as you might be able to tell, that was the first recording I made, and. Um, I don't think I managed to really uh, either find the right environment or tweak the settings for that. So apologies for the quality of that interview. But the content was great, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The quality uh, was rubbish. But uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's always difficult. And you do it. You actually do do a very good job in clearing up a lot of the noise. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, un- unusual and rare as it is. Um, I'll have to pay you a compliment, Matt, for some of your te- oh. technical work in the background. Well, I'll of course, put that, I'll put that. I'll put that in my little tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny compliments box. Especially when when you when you have remembered to actually put the right microphone on or uh, actually record the thing in the first place. Well, <laughs> yes. Sorry. Actually, there was an incident in there where uh, towards the end of that interview, <coughs> he said he said, "Oh, I can talk about this," and so I said, "All right, let's do that again," and um, turned the microphone off, and we talked about it, and then. I went to turn it off and realised I was turning it on again. I said, oh, no, we're going to have to say that again. (laughs) (laughs) So it happens even then. Uh, Sometimes I'm just crap. (laughs) But let's not tell the general public about that, Let's just cover over that. Anyway, um, yes, so absolutely. I think think I I love Evan's ideas around um, putting a a, a loop in uh, in New Zealand or in Polynesia or... Uh, in in that area with a Maori focus or a Maori element to it, because I think one of the things I mean I've only played Tales once. Uh, it was a great game, but the one thing it didn't have was any kind of sense of spiritualism, and I think that's mm. something which is is really powerful in Coriolis. It's a really nice element to the context, and often it comes out more, you know, sometimes in in Coriolis. Mm. So having something that links in a bit of spiritualism into into the loop, uh, Tales from the Loop as well. I think it's a really good idea. It's a really nice innovation. Um, it would be quite interesting to actually see what uh, uh, you know, see how it plays out. I mean, I don't know yeah. whether we can whether we can. Well, I think I think Evan some information. It. I can't remember whether he mentioned it in the interview, but um, afterwards he is thinking about maybe um, doing some. I don't think these particular players are that interested in 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 going online, but he is thinking that he might do some that he can uh, put into a stream or a podcast later on. So we should look out for that. And Evan, yeah, absolutely. if you do do that, get in touch and we'll promote that on the uh, on whatever episode it will be when you're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, completely. More, we're delighted to help, uh, help support that. That's a really good idea. Uh, and the other thing that Evan's doing, again, that we'll put a link for the show notes in now, is, of course, this bookbinding thing that yes. he's not quite uh, ready to... Uh, to set up as a business but i think he's looking forward to doing that as well but we'll put a link to his twitter or whatever in the in the show notes yeah absolutely a really good idea i mean uh always after some uh some good book binding but it might be quite a long way for us to, 
to go to to book yeah, point, I, but um, well, he, he's he's in England now. I mean, okay. He, from New Zealand, but he's working in England. Ah, uh, right, so it's right. not necessarily really expensive postage for us if we want to. But ah. I do remember, actually, the quality of books has improved. I mean, if we think of Forbidden Lands box set, mm. the Forbidden Lands box set is a, a, a thing of beauty to behold. And it's what I wanted my books to be like back in the 80s when everything we had was soft cover and stapled or sewn and, and fell to bits. Yeah. Because we were leafing through them so much. And I I remember I had my I used to play a lot of Rollmaster back then and I always had this fantasy of getting a book binder to bind all my Rollmaster stuff together into some fabulous leather bound tone. It's, it's funny, one of And it's one, taken only thirty uh, years for a business to think, hmm, that's a good idea. So when when I was a teenager, I'm not sure my fantasies were about book binding somehow. Yeah, well, you see I'm I'm more cultured than you are. Yeah, well, that's one word for it, I guess. <laughs> Who are your fantasies about then, Dave? Uh, I think that, Leslie Judd. I think there's information that remains uh, entirely confidential in these circumstances. Uh, okay, but uh, you know, if I was drunk enough, I might be convinced to to comment, but not at what is it, four forty on a Thursday afternoon. So, hey, listeners, I bet it was Leela of Doctor Who. Uh, I'm more. I'm more of a Romana man, actually. Oh, you are. The, yeah, uh, and in fact, the, the, the uh, blonde Romana as opposed to brunette Romana. Yeah, Lala Ward Romana. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Lala Ward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> okay. Anyway, yeah. So Lala, moving on. Lala, if you're listening, it's okay. I've got over it now. I'm a bit older, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lala Ward, the famous listener does... of the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm sure you never know. Stranger things you have never happened. know that, that horse. If you are listening, Lala, becoming... get in touch. Yeah, completely. Yeah, we've got a couple more players in Hamam interviews uh, coming up over the next couple of episodes, yeah. so look out for those. Yeah, cool. Good. Did you have any other recollections that you wanted to uh, sort of reminisce about our well, weekend before we talk about? Like you, I, I wandered stuff? around the halls in a bit of a daze, yeah. so there's not much that we that I saw that I can uh, that I can quite you know comprehend. Although one of the first things I saw was the um, there's a miniatures uh, skirmish game of Mutant Year Zero, which um, caught me by surprise. And to be honest, caught our caught free league by surprise, by, by <laughs> surprise as well. <laughs> yeah, just... but if you're interested in miniatures, uh, watch out for that. Uh, of course, they don't own the rights to mutant, and the people who do um, obviously can sell them to who, whoever they want. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think something I think else they're, they're going not, on there. They're not legally obliged to, to talk to free league about it, but I think it, you know, out of courtesy, there is a there is a thing there, and possibly a mutual cross promotion of uh different year zero lines you'd have thought yeah it'd be a bit of a no-brainer <laughs> you'd have but, thought uh what do i what do i well, know i'm i'm just a podcasting civil servant so well i i think the guys from free league were contacted when they made the uh computer game yeah yes they were uh, aware you know, of that, that yeah and they were aware of that but this this particular miniatures license is a license of the computer game so they're uh, just one okay. step removed, yeah. I think. So, uh, so that's well, probably why. And when and when they when the computer game came out, they were free league was promoting it. Yeah, so there was yeah, you know, there was a definite benefit in them being a bit more collaborative and uh, yeah, you know, open handed. But you know. So what else did I see? I um, 
well, yeah, as I say, in a bit of a daze, really. I did see the massive competition areas. So if you were playing the old 5R uh, game yeah. or Magic or whatever, then there were tables and tables with with big stop clocks, so you had a certain amount of time to play. Um, there's, I mean, if you haven't been, I think I can recommend that you should go. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. one of the things there was, even if you don't manage to sign up for any games, because uh, let's face it, our Alien game sold out in the first morning for a whole weekend. Yeah. But if you don't manage to sign up for any uh, of our games or anything else that's going on, there's a library. You can just go in, pick up a game, find a table and play with your mates. Yeah. Um, so marvellous. Yeah. It's a marvellous thing. It was very well done. I was very impressed actually with the overall organisation and how smoothly it ran. It was uh, a really well done show. And um, yeah, I look forward to going back again next year. Brilliant. But yes. I, but I think Let's hope free league inviters again. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. You never know. <laughs> maybe. What? As long as you didn't do anything embarrassing when you went drinking with them. We didn't. We didn't <laughs> offend them. I don't think. So. No. Uh, no. No. I don't think we did. And indeed we did. Because let, let's talk about why we were there. Because we were playing aliens. We were. And it went really well, didn't it? It did. It went brilliantly well. I think the first thing I was gonna, I'd say is um, just a great big sorry to all those people we had to turn away. We were, yeah. I, I, mean, I was, I expected it to be popular, but by eleven thirty on Friday morning, we'd signed up every single demo slot until four o'clock on Sunday, and that was mm. including some of the reserve slots as well. So, you know, we were constantly having to disappoint people who were coming up, and um, you know, wanted to wanted to give it a go. So I'm really sorry to those people that we weren't able to run more demos next year. The Free League are determined to have a uh, a bigger slot, a bigger booth, which will have potentially mm. opportunity to run two tables uh, of something or do something entirely different. But they were um, certainly keen to have a bigger presence next year, even though... Yeah, they were looking with some jealousy, I think, at some of the plots that yeah. some people had. And uh, but that said, we had though, just about the smallest plot. We did. We had a very small plot. We were kind of tucked away in a corner, but actually that corner was quite well placed because there was a lot of things going on there. And there was a lot yeah. of people who clearly had come to find the Free League team and talk to them. And so there was a constant footfall coming through. Obviously, you get peaks and troughs, but I certainly didn't feel like we were in a backwater where we were. But next year, no, Free, League, Free League definitely intend to have a, have a bigger presence and um, you know, make more of a make more of the trip. Yeah, I mean, we had designed the adventure, uh, it's worth saying, for six players. Initially, yeah. And it was only when we started talking about the size of the booth that we realised, hmm, we're going to have to shrink it down to four players <laughs> yeah. in each game. <laughs> um, because you literally could only get uh, four seats around the table, or five, including yours. Although, I would say, though, that actually that, that worked out really well, um, slightly by accident, although I'd love to claim that we had the foresight to to, to think of this but um, we had six characters for each game we had four players players died early and so we were very we didn't have to create more characters in order to allow them to rejoin the game if there was still half an hour or 45 minutes left to go if they'd uh, got themselves in a position there were spares yeah exactly and that worked that worked out well And and a group of four I think worked really well for a 90 minute game we were strictly now we had we had ourselves we'd set a strict time limit of 90 minutes for each each demo 
so we could get the most number of demos in throughout the day and um, have the demo more than just sit down, see an alien die and get up, which is probably all you manage yes. in an hour. So I think 90 minutes no, was the minimum right. we could probably have run it for. But it worked, actually. It worked really well. Yeah, I think you're right that actually reducing it to four probably meant it was more playable within 90 minutes. Yeah. And just, just two extra players would have stretched things out. Of course, you had six players, didn't you, for your um, the playtest? Um, so I had five. And that did last longer. I had five. All right, five. Um, and that was... Yeah, so... Well, let's say a little bit about the actual games because Free League have asked us to um, ferret off, make any amendments from playtesting it at the Games Expo uh, and give it over to them so they can give it to their GMs for Gen Con. So anyone who's listening yes. to this and is going to Gen Con at the end of uh, July, um, they Free League will be running demos of Aliens using the three scenarios that Matt and I have written for uh, the UK Games Expo. And they come under the heading of uh, Last Hopes, and there are three parts yes. to them. The first one uh, is called Hope's Last Hand, about a group of, in effect, space truckers. Because we were, should we say, obviously, we're we're looking at the last the last few hours, I guess, really of um, Hadley's Hope before everybody's dead. Yeah, yeah. But each of those each of these scenarios happens sort of uh, subsequently. So the threat isn't that bad, is it? In Last Hand. So you get, yeah, you know, it gets worse. So in Last Hand, mm. which is the first of the three, it's a bunch of people who have chosen to use the cover of the crisis to go and rob something and make some money. Um, they've got no weapons uh, except for what they find on the way. And there is obviously threat there. Um, there are other challenges yeah. that they have to face. But um, it's... Shall we say chestbursters have burst from chests, haven't they? Yeah, and so this is this is towards the as, as you said, this is towards the end of Hadley's Hope before um, you then get the run into the film Aliens when Ripley and the Colonial Marines come along. Um, so the first part, as I said, is 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 that group of people. The second part is called Hope's Last Dance, and it's the last moments or the last hours of Hadley's Hope uh, Union Band. So yes. <laughs> Uh, in order, in order to pass the time, they've been uh, practicing in one of the al- yeah, outer and- airlocks. Um, and when they when they uh, reconnect the tannoy, they suddenly find that the crisis has got much worse, and they're in deep trouble, and they have to try and escape. Yeah, and uh, there the threat is more. There are uh, more creatures for them to defeat, and more chaos for them to discover. Yeah. Um, but 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 you know you think there's still some hope there. There's still some hope, unlike the third scenario, <laughs> Hope's Last Stand, where you are um, your characters that maybe the other guys have met. In fact, uh, the local civilian militia um, who've been since the beginning of, uh, uh, of the of the first scenario have been trying to capture uh, these creatures. Well, now it's all gone to pot. They seem to be the last people alive, and they've got to um, they're, well. They've, what they've got to do is repair the um, the uh, the emergency beacon and get that going before they all die. Indeed. Um, yeah. So we run those three scenarios. Um, I think we ran fifteen demos in total. So fourteen or fifteen demos. Fourteen. 
14. Um, so three, Good. two of them got ran five times. One of them got ran four times. And uh, they all had a variety of different endings. Um, some of them better than others. I mean, there was one group I think that yeah. you had that played kind of really tactically well and you let them live. Well, there were <laughs> there were two, in fact, that actually succeeded in their objectives. So, you know, that was the situation. That, that every, all of these groups started in the same situation. What they did with that situation was, up to was I think, yeah. radically different every time. Yeah. And so one time when I was running... Hope's Last Stand, they were really focused on um, on the mission, actually. Yeah. There was a little bit of, uh, you know, there was a little bit of um, intra-party in, intra politics, shall we say, yeah. with, uh, with uh, people feeling the commanding officer wasn't up to scratch or whatever, but the commanding officer knew what his mission was. Uh, they... they they located you know, as many uh, signals as they could. They tried to avoid as many unknown uh, uh, echoes as they could. They went to the place. They uh, uh, and as as oh no, I'm going to spoil it. There were aliens in this game. As the aliens came in, <laughs> they 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 very effectively mustered their forces to do everything they needed to do to get to to get the signal going, and they actually. Um, as, as an alien charge, they managed to blast it apart with uh, with a with a seismic charge. Mm -hmm. So there's been a couple of things where if the group know the alien is coming and they prepare for it and they're ready for it, then sometimes the alien can be taken down relatively easily, which is which is fine. I think that fits the fits the movie idea really well. If you're taken by surprise or you don't have a suitable weapon, then you are in deep trouble. So as Matt said, yes. we 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 were running um, actual aliens, xenomorphs uh, in this game. The 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 cinematic quick starter or the starter pack has got um, uh, what they call neomorphs and, a, a different and, and abominations, which are yeah they're different different versions, more kind of Prometheus and Covenant style. Whereas for this one, we obviously wanted to run with aliens, so um, Free League asked us to. To put the rules together, which which we did, and those are the rules that we'll be using. We use for that, and that will be sent with the uh, the, the package for the GMs for Gen Con. So um, yeah, there's real aliens doing real alien stuff um, in this. Yes. So it's, uh, from the first two movies, yeah, that sort of real alien. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and 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 all the different life forms of it. I mean, what we were trying to do with the three uh, different ninety minute scenarios is not only recreate the last hours of Hadley's Hope but also try and show three different styles yeah. of play so I, you know obviously with the, with Had Hope's Last Hand that's very much a sort of caper your know, space truckers um, whereas the second one is a survival mission as colonists yeah. and the third one is more military you, 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 you're reasonably well armed you've got insurmountable odds and you've got to try and shoot as many as you can, effectively. So the three different play styles that might appear in the campaign frames are, are kind of laid out in those three yeah, adventures as well. Absolutely. And, it, and as I say, I'm, I'm fascinated by the different approaches people took. Um, I've, got to, I've got to say, Hope's Last Hand, uh, the first time I played that, because that was the first one we played, uh, there was a lovely moment when... Uh, you and I could see you were watching over my shoulder, and you 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 watched these players walk right into the place where we had put the alien nest, as it were. <laughs> so yeah. that was something that happened entirely by surprise, and they weren't prepared for it. That didn't go well. But another one, 
another group managed to avoid that in some way. Oh no, I think they didn't avoid it, but they did manage to. They were they had a useful bit of equipment that uh, man, mm. they managed to defeat that uh, alien, and they got to the safe, but they couldn't crack the safe, <laughs> and so they managed to take the holes that they threw the safe down the stairs. And, and they carted it around to where the vehicle was, uh, only there to find uh, uh, another alien. But in fact, they were pre-warned about that because one of them had turned traitor and had gone to escape, uh, leave them to their deaths, and had then um, found the alien and shut himself in a building and was, the alien was trying to get to him. So they were pre-warned about that alien. So they managed effectively, I think, in the 90 minutes to get away. Yeah. So, uh, there was, yeah, there was entirely different outcomes. Yeah, likewise in mine, and some really good cinematic outcomes where you could imagine the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the stars of the film realising that the end is nigh and you know, the, the end credits start to, to roll. Um, but it was, um, yeah, there was a very, very wide variety of, uh, of, of endings. And a lot of them didn't get anywhere near their objective there was also quite a lot of um shutting bulkhead doors on your colleagues mm-hmm. um and yeah and run- a lot of that in my and running well. away there was quite there was occasions of um pushing people into rooms and then shutting the doors and running away uh, there was yeah. there was some rank stupidity where um <laughs> the, you, you you expect uh you want to build up a bit of tension you're not necessarily even in a 90 minute demo going to have the aliens appear immediately um, I had one where they were uh, going through some tunnels and they could hear rattling in the in the pipes above them. Yeah, something large. It wasn't a rat. And one of them went, Cooey, who's up there? And I thought, that's <laughs> that's stupid. So the alien kind of said, well, I'm up here and joined, and joined them in the corridor at that moment. Did he really? Or did the alien go? And it, ki- it kind of went, yeah, it kind of went that, yeah. But in its mind, yeah. <laughs> it went, I'm up here and it's, oh, breakfast time. <laughs> it's me. Yeah. Surprise. But it was, it was really good. And um, the, the players, players made the games really, really special. Uh, and I hope yeah. it goes as well as it went at the Expo. Um, I hope it goes as well at Gen Con. So fingers crossed. Now, some of the things that we, in, in a way, we were playtesting your alien design, weren't we? So we have made yeah. some changes to the aliens for, dead, uh, for Gen Con. You might find them a little bit more deadly. Well, when um, when when I was talking to Thomas Herrenstam from Free League, who was uh, gave me the commission to write it, um, his his basic advice was make them a little more badass. So <laughs> I made them quite badass. Um, Matt, you had an occasion at the expo where you felt um, yeah there, there was a particular situation which you can tell us about in a moment. But in light of some of that. We've made them a little bit more badass again. Uh, mm-hmm. So fighting an alien, particularly if you haven't got a big weapon or you're not ready for it, is, as you would expect, going to be a bad thing. Yeah. So, yeah, the incident you're referring to was uh, a real luck of the dice incident. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who maybe haven't got the quick start, um, the alien works a bit like monsters in Forbidden Lands in that you roll a d6 for the attack for the sort of attack they're going to do. For its signature attack, And uh, one of the things we discovered was quite fun in the spirit of uh, the convention games was asking the player who was being attacked to roll for the manner (laughs) of their execution. And so uh, generally we'd absolve the rolling to the player, which of course means 
if something like this happens, you can't fudge the dice like you might really when you're a GM. <laughs> so the player kept rolling ones for the alien attack. And the one for this particular alien is basically menacing hiss. Yeah. Which kind of, um, I can't remember quite what the effects of menacing hiss are, but frankly, the fourth or fifth time that uh, uh, this guy's beneath this alien and the alien is hissing at him menacingly Again. <laughs> kind of kind of start losing the dramatic tension yeah. I mean this guy had done so much you know he'd, he'd said to the others run 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 and he was gonna you know he he was trying to kill the alien himself he'd tried to blow himself up oh the, the he got a really bad roll with the with the bomb that he had. So neither him nor the alien were killed by this bomb. It just <laughs> rolled some really bad dice. Um, so yeah, we were just beginning to lose the dramatic tension. I felt, and so that's one of the things you fixed. The menacing hiss now puts your stress dice up by one every time. Yeah, because that was thing. I think that's that's what happens with menacing hiss, isn't it? You make a you make a panic roll. You make a panic roll, yeah. But if you? if you if you've got two, and he, this guy had reasonably low stress, yeah. so he's making a panic roll, but covering himself pretty much every time. Yeah. Um, and so uh, yeah, we, hopefully he'll get more and more panicked yeah. the more the alien hisses. Although that said, I mean there there is always that risk that of, of whiffy dice rolling that that comes up with a yeah. with a very strange kind of outcome. Um, I, but that can be really entertaining as well. Well, it can it? be because there were there was a couple of occasions in games that I ran where the the dice rolling of the signature attack for the alien uh, in a given situation kind of made it really quite almost special. It really made a good feel of the alien almost lovingly killing the person mm. you know, over three or four rolls. So there was one where. Um, uh, I won't reveal too much, but they were running away from this alien. They'd left a couple of people to die, and two of them were running. One of them um, panicked as he was trying to escape and froze. So the alien was able to come up behind him. The first roll meant that the alien, uh, I think, grabbed him and was readying to kill him. And then the second roll was... Uh, um, might have been menacing hiss or something. Um which basically gave the guy the chance, he was carrying a fire extinguisher, to turn and try and hit it with the fire extinguisher one last time, which he failed. He then froze again with panic, um, and then the alien had a roll that killed him. But cinematically, mm. it, you can imagine that being a really kind of exciting... Cat and mouse type 30, thing, 30 yeah. 30-second scene where, you know, the it's not just, oh, the alien comes up to you and boshes you on the head and you're dead. It's uh, it really gives a nice little story to the death of that poor character, which will work really nicely. There's a cu- couple of examples like that, which work really nicely. Now, of course, if you're heading to Gen Con and you don't want to be spoiled, you possibly we've got to be careful not to say too much yeah. about what happens in these stories. Um, but if you do want to be spoiled, or if you've listened to the last three episodes of our podcast, you'll have heard one of those stories, Hope's Last Hand, being played out. A slightly more extended version, but yeah. Slightly more, yeah. It was an early playtest, so yeah. we hadn't quite got the timing right for that one. Yeah. Um, and uh, you have also run another game for Victory Condition Gaming, so that's at least on YouTube now, yeah, and I think they're going to do it as a podcast. Yeah, I think that's And that was case. Hope's... And that was Hope's last dance. Um, dance. Yeah. So that's two of them. We're going backwards through time. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I might try and run Hope's Last Hand for Jackacon, which is a virtual convention. And if I can wangle it, I'll try and make that a streaming thing or at least a YouTube thing. Yeah, cool. And probably 
take the soundtrack and put that into our podcast uh, as well for a yeah. future also game. Um, I've, so, I've agreed with um, with Doug of Victory Condition Gaming to uh, run another alien uh, live stream probably in mid-July the scenario of which um, is yet to be determined it might be a bug hunt focused one to give a different sense mm. um, uh, of you know the uh, you know the the more colonial marine style uh, of game but um, yeah look out cool. look out for that on uh, on the victory condition game stream yeah but we have had one of our listeners we have. has uh, listened to the last few episodes and commented on the free league four yeah. And that's Jonas Ferry. And he had a bunch of questions, and I've answered some of them, but I wasn't there, and I wasn't GMing for this um, that particular thing. So I've got some questions for you, uh, Dave, well, to challenge you with, uh, to finish this episode off with. Well, I think also we could we could say a little bit about what we like about the system as well, I think, um, involve, you know, in the answers to this. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, if you're going to pose the questions then, Matthew. I have read it. Unfortunately, for the moment, I can't log in because I've forgotten all my details. So I can't answer on the <laughs> so forum. So you can't reply. So I'm waiting for Nils to, uh, to reset me. But, um, yeah, let's uh, let's answer those questions now. Go on, Matt. You, okay, you... first of all, let's get the compliments over. Um, <laughs> he doesn't think you're the best GM ever, but he does think that you and the guys you played with were a fun group he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he'd like to play with. He, d- he doesn't specifically say that I'm not the best GM ever either, though. So there's no reference. No, there is that. There is that. Um, and he says, I'd love to see a report from the convention games or perhaps an episode where you discuss them. Well, Jonas, welcome to this episode. Um, now, the first question you've got, I'm not quite sure the context of this one. Designing a sentry gun that shoots lit- litmus paper to detect acid blood, he was thinking should be both a heavy machinery mm. and a contact role. What was going on in there? You haven't listened to it, have you, Matthew? Well, I edited it, but I don't <laughs> listen to it when I'm editing. <laughs> uh, there, there was basically one of the players um, wanted to know if you could set the sentry guns to detect acid blood. Uh, oh, right. I think wanting to shoot aliens rather than shoot people, which is fair enough. Yeah. Um, so I, I said to him, "Well, if there is, if you can tell me a, a reasonable way that convinces me that you can do that, then crack on." Uh, one of the others said, well, you need to fire litmus paper out and have it detect, and then the gun can detect whether it's acid or alkali. And uh, It was one of those silly moments down the pub when you had a couple yes. of beers. <clears throat> yes. Okay. <laughs> but I think, actually, the rules do say something like you can, with some success, program a sentry gun to not shoot humans. Yep. Or, or yeah, so, uh, friend, or friend, some kind of friendly signature that it won't fire at, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's not a hundred percent. But it's not hundred percent. No, and, which uh, which is great. Yeah. So there's also an in, there's also an interesting thing about sentry guns which came up, um, which we've fed back to free league. Sentry guns get eight ranged uh, combat dice. Um, mm-hmm. They don't get any stress dice, so they can never mm-hmm. run out of ammo. Oh yeah. So um, I I suggested to Thomas that maybe what you ought to do is just chuck in one stress dice that relates to sort of the mechanical stress of the weapon, the weapon overheating, or that kind of thing. So you do, yeah. so you actually have a chance of the gun stopping because otherwise it'll have unlimited ammo. Um, mm. and, and that was the way I played it, but I don't know how Thomas is going to reflect that in the the final rules. He might find another another way of dealing with it, but I thought that was quite a sort of uh, elegant way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, what he he says, what what he missed from the recording is you explaining the rules to the players. Yeah. Um, 
I think this was the third time we played, so it didn't even occur yeah. to me on this occasion to explain the rules. Um, I think it's fair enough, like you say, for a podcast uh, to do that. So um, I think next time we can we can do that. That's not a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that I like to do in podcasts. There are some podcasts that are very, or actual play podcasts, that are very sort of theatrical and edited really well, like a, you know, sound effects and all sorts of stuff, like an audio drama. And you don't hear much of the rules. But actually, what I love about podcasts is hearing yeah. the rules get explained. So, so maybe we'll yeah. try and do that. Well, I think that's a fair enough point. And I, it, kind of in my defence in this situation, um, I wasn't sure we were ever going to use it. I wasn't sure how good the quality yeah. was going to be. I was just recording it on the off chance. And so just got no. just, just got into the game. But that's a, it's, a fair, yeah, it's a fair I've, point. I've got to say, it's this wasn't point. particularly planned, was it, as 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 a recording? It was, it was, uh, a, it was a kind of, yeah... Off, off the cuff impromptu thing. impromptu let's just yeah. give it a go and see what happens kind of thing yeah because I was running the playtest okay anyway. then he picks <clears> up on a bit that I thought we'd caught in an earlier playtest uh, which is in part one the PC panicked he got a 7 plus on the roll but under 10 and it sounded like it was treated as an automatic fail of the task and that's only on 10 and above as he says yeah um, now I again, you know, I wasn't listening properly. I didn't hear that. So but we, you had done that in the earlier playtests. So basically, that's, in the, that's something in the first playtest that we did, which was on the version of the the rules uh, before the actual starter set. So it was slightly different. Yes, yeah, it was our earlier draft in, that sent us. Yeah, in those rules, it was not clear at all that you needed to roll ten or more in order to actually have your. Uh, the you know, the your panic the your panic fail. then made you fail. Um, so in that game I ran then, which did that first did one. we put that out as a podcast? So, no, we didn't. didn't no. 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 So in, I, yeah, I, so in that one I made the sound quality isn't quite no. as good. So in that one uh, there was, we went for the third one. Yeah. So in that one there was a couple of errors. Um, one I'd given too much narrative stress early on, not realizing that the tipping point is actually about three or four when it starts to get really mm. difficult. Then, um, and obviously in that game, I did run that any panic was a fail. I don't think I did in this one. Maybe I made an error without realising it. Or it may well be, as Jonas suggests in the text, that it was just a failed roll anyway, rather than, um, uh, you know, that you didn't succeed rather than failing because of the panic. But I'm certainly aware of that rule. And obviously in the the starter pack, uh, Thomas had cleared that up and made it much clearer that yes um, yes because we'd, we'd we'd asked him about that yeah. hadn't we and he said oh that's yeah i've got to make that clearer yeah because basically I I, um, I I played back my my first comments on that play test uh and commented that actually stress was a real problem and caught stress mm-hmm. and panic and it was because the rules weren't clear and they were failing on a seven yeah. or above and i dished out too much narrative stress at the start Yes, yeah. so, so be- they dishing out too much narrative beware. stress. Beware, beware, narrative stress. We had planned with these games to start people off with a point of stress, hadn't we? And then we we dropped that straight <laughs> yeah. away because we thought you're going to get stressed. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> don't don't need more. Yep. Um, uh, so I'm just looking at uh, another question he's got here. Um, yeah, so this is this is the thing about GMing style, and actually I replied to this on on the line, but it's interesting to hear you talk about it. Um, so obviously, you know, we're pushing the roles in this game and it's 
you, you push the rolls in lots of free league games. In in Coriolis, it's like prayer. And I remember we had a discussion about whether that meant actually you were trying a second time. Yeah. And we decided that in Coriolis, it didn't mean that. No. But he was wondering whether, rather than simply push the roll, there should be some narration of it going badly and trying a second time to get it right. Um, so I read that. I, I can totally get Jonas's point, actually. And I think the one of the examples he uses um, around range combat, which is the, the PC is basically getting more and more frantic each time they pull the trigger trying to shoot something. Um, mm. Yeah, and that works. Um, I So, as you said, in Coriolis, we hadn't run it that way. In, in Mutant Year Zero, when I run that campaign before, um, I hadn't done it as kind of a second attempt or you know I know I'm going to fail so I'm going to just try that a little bit harder uh, I think yeah like you say it comes down to style I, I wouldn't want to be narrating for the players every single time they pushed a die roll what that actually meant mm. in narrative terms I think the players are, are quite capable of, of imagining how that feels for themselves and occasionally I think if there's a really obvious or really good example then you might just throw that in um, but yeah but but say so, so we don't tend to to bother doing that and it's not like you get a bonus action to try again by pushing the dice yeah. it's all kind of the same second or second and a half two seconds in the yeah you know it's or split second to or, be honest. yeah <clears throat> but um but, so, yeah, but i do I... but i do think sorry just to finish but i do think his um uh his examples there are actually quite good ones so if you wanted to use that you could you could easily just say when the characters when the players re-roll the dice and it comes up a success you can say yes you've wipe some sweat off your brow and done it but also quite often yeah. you're getting yourself into a position where um, there is a bit of narrative tension and pace going on and once you get the success there's often a yeah you're a great success move on to the success rather than going back and explaining what you did just before that success because you've kind of moved yeah. on beyond that so um, exactly. I mean, it's up to GMs however they want to do it and I think there are bound to be occasions and the examples that Jonas uses are good are nice good ones Um but I think it's situational. You need to decide whether stopping to narrate how you got that success after the event helps you with that narrative intention or hinders you. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I, I had a GM uh, for, or DM, I should say, for a campaign of 5th edition D&D that I played locally mm -hmm. who would always narrate your combat. Yeah. So as a player... All I was doing was rolling a d20, and then he'd tell me about my style of attack okay. and stuff like that. And he was obviously inspired by my character, who is fabulous. So, <laughs> but he would do this for everybody. And actually, I was, you know, it's the player's job. To generally, do that, really? actually, a bit unhappy with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had an idea about how my character was moving, what he was doing, and it. It kind of niggled that he would say this is how your attack goes yeah. every time. And so I don't like doing that for players. But interestingly, in the games we played at uh, UK Games Expo, I did find myself, not so much on the combat roles, but on when somebody was using Comtech or something like that, I, you know, I'd, I'd narrate a little bit about the, you know, the computer uh, obstructing them in some way yeah. but then finally getting to do it if they push their role so I did find myself narrating it more in Alien than I do I think generally in all the other Free League games mm. cool. so maybe it fits in Alien better anyway um, 
Now, he accuses you of regularly skipping stunts on skill rolls, even though the players rolled multiple successes. How do you plead? <laughs> um, so I, 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 I think... So it, it depends on what you, uh, as a GM, have as kind of core principles. And I find, particularly in a game like Alien, the core thing that you've got to do as a GM is keep the tension and keep the pace. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm entirely relaxed uh, and would encourage players to consider what they want their stunts to do if if it's if there's any value in it so I think some of the some of the things so for example um, stunts to uh, make them finish in half the time if you are I'm trying to think of roles that they would have done that so there might have been a um, Comtech role where they were uh, interrogating a computer terminal or something, or maybe when they were trying to fix the the, the transmission relay board in Hope's Last Stand, one of those things. Um, mm. Fixing the relay, the, the 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 relay is a slow action, so halving the time of that is kind of irrelevant. Um, halving the time of an action that takes a turn, you know, five to ten minutes, yeah, that might be that might be suitable. Yeah. But also, I think one of the things that they do suggest, which is you know, having a plus one on a, on a later roll of a similar ilk. Um, well, maybe, but in a fast-paced game, I don't want to sit down and be bookkeeping so-and-so has got plus one on a contact roll when it refers to a computer terminal. Uh, so-and-so over there has got a plus one on a heavy machinery roll when it refers to a uh, bulkhead. Yeah, does it add anything? Does it gain anything? Not really, I don't think, in that terms. It is, again, up to each GM to decide how they play those if there is something that it could really benefit the story or benefit mm-hmm. the you know actively benefit the player then great but I think if they are if they're doing something with as I said use that example of a one turn to interrogate a computer terminal um, if they've succeeded it then I I would you know give them more information for their extra successes yeah or, 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 I mean, that's generally what I did yeah. in the convention games we played. So, uh, so, was so, give you more information. Yeah. So, I would, or I would tell them yeah. some other thing happening at the moment rather than storing up a bit yeah. of success for later on. Um, and I've found in all the games that I've run that it doesn't seem to be to be a problem. Um, no one's sort of complained that they feel hard done by by um, not being able to make more of their stunts. I think also. There is a real uh, responsibility on the player. Now, when it comes to combat, I do try and encourage the players to do more with their stunts rather than just take hit extra points of damage. Now, mm. I can totally get in an alien game where you've got an alien bearing down and you damage is the king, so you might throw all yeah. its damage, which is what the players have tended to do. Um, but and you might not want to disarm the alien. No, but that's another point we could talk about in a moment. Um, that's a subtle dig. <laughs> about, about disarming. Um, yeah. But so, so I think that there are things you could do with a bit of player imagination. Um, and this is where it is the player's responsibility. It's their, their, it's their stunts. It's not my stunts as the GM. It's their stunts as the player. If they want to make use of them to maybe have a bullet go through a, uh, a steaming hot pipe and have steam pour out into the corridor that then pushes the alien back for a turn and gives them more time to escape. Brilliant. 
I'll more than happily allow that. All those kind of things. Um, but uh, I think where it comes, where it's a relatively routine plot driving activity, uh, then it's less it's less important to bookkeep all those stunts. Unless, like you say, when you know we give them more information, you might make them see, uh, for example, in in the Alien game, Hadley's Hope. Uh, you might give them access to the CCTV system, or there might be more mm. more cameras available in more useful places for them with their stunts, rather than um, just ignore them. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things I did in one of the games I I ran where they were wanting to get a camera working, and I they got quite a lot of successes. And I said, well, suddenly all the screens flicker to life, and you see this here and this here and this here. Um, Actually, that brings me on to another uh, question. Um, now, I, I'm not getting a dig at you this one, but there was a, a big difference in the scenarios we wrote. I, in 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 some of the uh, situations like breaking into the safe, I said, you know, it's one roll, one success is all you need to break the safe. Now, you had in well, particularly, I'm thinking in Hope's Last Stand. You had to get a number of successes to get the generator rolling. Yeah. A bit like the extended tasks in Tales from the Loop. Now, I've got to admit, when I ran those games, I ignored that and I just had one success to get a generator going. Having played a number now, do what do you think about that? Because I feel personally that this is a sort of one success plus stunt thing as opposed to trying to get five successes. Have you changed your mind at all? Um, I think there's... Uh, a place for both potentially. So, um, in that case, you're you know if you got three successes on a particular role, you'd have done five three of the five successes you needed. So those stunts would go towards mm. turning the generator on. The the reason my my reasoning for doing that was all about building up the last stand tension at the end of that scenario. Because, As the aliens are approaching, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I dig exactly why you do because you want you um, want half the team trying to hold the aliens off and dying whilst the last person is desperately trying to pull the last lever and press the last button to get the get the signal away to build up that tension. Now, I think having run it, the I perhaps overestimated the player's ability to hold the aliens off. Um, <laughs> so there is definitely something about um, do you need that extra time built in to build that tension? You probably don't. I did run it in that way. Um... And it worked, it worked really well. I mean, the players seemed to nobody balked at the idea. I think you could do it either way. I think, frankly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it'll be a thing for people to try out. Yeah. And you know, it does fit because uh, I'm now going to talk about my son, who um, he's 14. He's never seen Alien. Obviously, all this is happening. I made him watch Alien, uh, and he said it was only slightly less boring than 2001. <laughs> um, and there is that sequence where she's setting the ship to blow up, which is a whole bunch of faff of yeah. rising columns and turning this, that and the other, which, yeah, it would feel like that was a thing that in this game would require multiple successes to get yeah. turned on. And then, of course, multiple successes to get turned off again five minutes later, um, which she failed uh, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so... So, yeah, I can understand the reason for doing multiple successes. Uh, I just, in this game, I'm wondering whether um, it feels right or not. Well, I think if, if, if any of the GMs 
who might be running it at Gen Con are listening, or anyone who might run it in the future, um, I think it's up to the GM to decide at the time. So the whole cool. purpose, yeah. I think, uh, of the end of that is to build up the tension. It, it is the last stand. It, you know, these are the last people on the colony that are all probably going to die. Though maybe not. Um, and they've got a job to do. They've got to sell their lives very highly in order to achieve what they're trying to do. Um, yeah. If if your players are miles ahead and all they've got to do is go and flick a button, then that's pretty boring end to the scenario. Um, so then you might want them to make more than one roll to get the generator working. Yeah. If they're on their last legs and there's only one of them left alive and there's an alien bashing the door down, you might want to give it just the one roll, maybe. So I think, yeah. you know... As... Or maybe we'll put that in a sidebar or something for the version that we sent to Nils for, the, for Gen Con. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe, or maybe uh, let's not. Let's just say. <laughs> um, uh, one other question. Oh yeah, this is. Uh, uh, I think uh, I, mean, I agree with you entirely on this one. Um, so he talks about one moment there where you get a nervous twitch, panic, which of course then gives other people um, a role or a point as well, and. Uh, the panicking PC didn't spread any stress because they were hiding. And this is something I've been thinking about. I think other PCs in short were in short range in the same zone. But since the first PC was hiding, they didn't transmit any stress. And I think you played that right. You know, the rules, the rules do say in the same, you know, in short range, but they've really got to be noticing the guy yeah. freaking out, haven't they? Before they're going to panic I, as I well. I think so, yeah. And if he's, if he's hidden then I don't think it's going to affect anybody else. And I think That's also, a judgment call. It is, yeah, completely. I think also, um, I'm not certain where this comes in the scenario, but I think it might be when they are uh, at the um, comms array at the end, in the last natural, the, the mm-hmm. last stand part of it, um, and they're outside, and it's howling winds and storms. So actually, I think you know, it's there's there's a number of reasons why you're not going to hear somebody whimpering when you can't see them in that environment and it makes absolute sense i think um if you if you just if you think it's like you know uh almost i don't like almost like a pheromone or something then fine you know play it like that if you want but i think you've got to be reasonable about whether or not person a who is not stressed can see can hear or is you know influenced by person b who is stressed or panicking um, I think just make a call on the day, and and sometimes I think one of my slight criticisms is the kind of uh, panic cascade that can happen quite easily yes. in that kind of t- t- like tension taut moment at the end, where suddenly you find you've got one person rolling. Everybody's panicking. Yeah, you, everybody's frozen. You've got one person rolling panic, and then suddenly everyone's got to roll panic, and then but because of something that happens to them, everybody else has got to roll panic, and. Yeah, I think panic is great, but uh, the, you need to be a little bit selective or or not allow it to just happen all the time because it just loses any any sense of uh, shock or, or power, I think. Also, once the players roll it a few times, they get to work out what the table looks like. So they know they've got to roll nine yeah. or less and they're okay, pretty much. Um, or seven or less and they're okay. So... Uh, that, that's my I've got this is a kind of niggling concern about the panic table in that it is just a table of x number of options and in a game like this you're going to roll panic quite a lot 
or a, mm-hmm. a hell of a lot amongst the group of you. And so you take some of that fear and mysticism of panic away. So I, I yeah. think you've got to balance it a bit carefully. Cool. Um, just one other comment he makes, and um, I feel this is probably based on what players might have said in the discussion afterwards. So he says, I think the ending of starting the distress beacon works fine, even if one of the players found it more logical for everyone just to accept their fates and die alone in space. Do you want to uh, shed any light of illumination on that? Because obviously I think it works fine, and it's a lovely lead-in to the movie. In fact, I told one of my groups that if they didn't get it working then aliens wouldn't happen at all <laughs> and James Cameron wouldn't have his uh, marvellous success that he <laughs> has had since. Just to really draw it, because they, they were thinking, well, let's just get out of here and not do it. Um, and I managed to persuade them that they should follow through with the mission. Um, so, yeah, what, what did one of your players think that there was an alternative ending? I don't think so. I don't really recall that. I mean, sometimes the players say things at the end of an evening when they've had some alcohol, uh, yeah, that might just be a throwaway comment that they don't really mean. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly don't remember this particularly, so it didn't really, obviously, land with me as a as as an issue that they were raising in the game. But again, you know, it's entirely up to the players. If they decided that, as happened on a couple of occasions at the expo, um, that actually trying to fulfil their mission was just way too dangerous and they're going to get the hell out of dodge, well, fine, do that. Um, you still have to escape the aliens. Yeah, um, you still got to get out of dodge. Yeah, precisely. So, uh, entirely <laughs> yeah. up to them if they wanted to do that. I think if you were being strict, or looking at it strictly from a cinematic scenario where you've got story points and you, you have a collective mission, and then obviously everyone's got their own agenda that they need to try and play through as well, um, I think the players have to buy into that a little bit and say, well, yes. our mission is this, and we need to do everything we can to do that. It's it's a different setting than if you were in a campaign scenario where your character is uh, well, it's your character. It's not a pregen. Um, yeah. It's not been given a uh, you know had a enforced mission put upon them. Yeah. Um, they would have some more latitude to choose. Whereas in a cinematic one shot, yeah, yeah, that's your objective. Go for it. And I've got to say, everybody generally not only did the mission, whatever it was or attempted it, should we say, very few passed. But they all they all really bought into their personal agendas yes. as well, didn't they? Yeah, very much. Their personal um, agendas worked really well, I thought. Um, led to some excellent, excellent play. Yeah. Um, cool. So th- those will all survive in the version we, we sent to Gen Con. Um, I think we've... Have we done talking about I this yet? I think we have. We've been rattling on for a very long time. Uh, it feels like we've been talking about this particular bit for an hour. <laughs> Yes, so I think we've probably uh, exhausted ourselves, um, maybe not the, the, the conversation opportunities, but I think we've probably exhausted our listeners too. This is a pretty long one, actually. Yes. So I think, um, unless you've got anything else, Matthew, that you particularly can't wait until next time to say? No, I think, uh, I, I just want to thank, actually, uh, I, I, he didn't intend it uh, to be necessarily highlighted on on the show but i do want to thank jonas ferry for putting all those questions yeah, on there absolutely and remind everybody that you can feedback to feedback at effectpodcast.org or you know find us on facebook or on the in the feel again forums or on me we 
and just uh, ask us anything about what we talk about and we're happily engaging conversation absolutely unless of course a password to the forums doesn't work <laughs> which Nils is working on for me as we speak um, <laughs> brilliant right, so yeah. we ought to sign off and next time I'll definitely will tell you all why you should be playing Coriolis indeed um, but yes so it's uh, goodbye from me until next time and it's goodbye from him, as they used to say on the two runners. But it's no, it's goodbye from me, and uh, may the icons bless your bug hunt. It didn't sound as good as I thought it was going to. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric. <laughs>